Hello, and welcome to our seventh Bible study in the life of the prophet Samuel. We, he will crop up again when we move later into the life of David, but this is the last talk which is devoted really to, to his career and his work as a prophet. You know by now he was born a priest, as a boy he became a prophet, as a man he became a judge, and then towards the end of his ministry he anointed and appointed the first two kings of Israel. Saul had made a mess of things, not quite from the beginning, but quite early on in his reign. He thought he could behave like a priest. And when Samuel hadn't turned up to worship God and to seek God's blessing upon a battle with the Philistines, Saul took the law into his own hands and started to offer burnt offerings to God. And God said to him through Samuel, you have, not you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Saul himself had been a tall, good-looking man, chosen to be the king, the first king of the Israelites. At the start of his reign, he'd routed the Philistines to the north, the east, the west and the south. And he now commanded an army of 210,000 men. And he thought to himself, I need a monument, I need a memorial, I need something to remind people of me when I've gone. After Samuel had a, a, a monument erected back there in chapter 7, but that memorial was for the honour of the Lord. It was called Ebenezer. Thus far the Lord has helped us. It meant help stone. It was for the glory of God. But Saul thought, no, I want one for my own glory. What was he thinking? Pride had entered into his mind. Pride, the sin that caused Satan's fall in heaven. Pride, which caused Eve and Adam to fall into sin in Eden. Pride, which caused Cain to murder his brother Abel. Later, pride caused David to commit adultery with Bathsheba. Ahab and Jezebel stole Naboth's vineyard. Think of Herod's attempt to kill the king of the Jews. Judas's betrayal of Jesus. The Sanhedrin's hatred of Jesus. All motivated by pride. Pride is when you think you are as important as God. Pride is when you say, me first, you second, and God last. Let's read then about this monument in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord has sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 soldiers on foot and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. 
Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. God, through Samuel, called upon Saul to do, deal with the Amalekites in the way that the judges should have done years before. They were the descendants of Esau, cousins to the Israelites, if you like, but they worshipped the Baal gods with all its idolatry and promiscuity and sex at the shrines, worship of devils, human sacrifices. It was a bloodthirsty and a brutal form of worship. Even their babies, they would offer alive in sacrifice on, on, as a burnt offering to God. Their worship was abominable to God. In Deuteronomy, Moses had warned them about this. He had said, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget... Saul was told to totally destroy the enemy. Now this is so contrary, isn't it, to European ideas of warfare and the usages of war. So contrary to the Geneva Convention and other conventions relating to war. I need to try to justify the ways of God to men. How are we to understand this? Well, also back in Deuteronomy, in chapter 20, Moses had written... However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, this is the point, otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Now, this is not ethnic cleansing, because any member of one of these banned races, if you like, could follow the Lord and believe in him and become a part of the covenant community. Think of Ruth, for example, who was a Moabite woman, and the Jews were told to have nothing to do with Moabites. Think of Rahab, who was the Canaanite prostitute in Jericho at the time of Joshua. She was saved as well. Even here in this passage, the Kenites are mentioned. Now, the Kenites were a group of Canaanites who did help the Israelites when they came into the land. And believe it or not, Moses married a Kenite. So there was salvation available for these people, but not if they remained loyal to their gods. Now, the worship of Yahweh, the Lord, was countercultural in those days because there was nothing to see. You would go into the holy place, if you're the high priest, the, 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 the Holy of Holies, there's nothing there. There's no statue. 
There's no idol. There's no glittering uh, representation of God. Just, just a golden box with a couple of cherubim. There was no idol in Yahweh worship. There was no demonic element in Yahweh worship. There was, there was no offering of the thing most precious to you, your child or your baby. There was no sexual element to it. Yahweh worship was strict. The worship of Baal was promiscuous. It was very persuasive. And this idea of totally destroying these unbelievers appears seven times in this one chapter. In verses 1 to 3, Samuel is told to tell Saul, attack and destroy. And in verses 4 to 7, Saul assembled a huge army, 210,000 men. He had success, as he'd had success before in defeating the Philistines. But he exempted one man, the king, Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now why would this be? In our own history, we have the experience of Queen Elizabeth I, who had as a prisoner, here in the Midlands, Queen Mary of Scots. Queen Mary of Scots had a very good right to be the Queen of England. They were both, Elizabeth and Mary, hereditary queens, anointed queens, crowned queens. Elizabeth didn't want to set the example that it's quite okay to kill a sovereign. She didn't want regicide to become acceptable in the thinking of the people. And so it was with Saul. He didn't want to put about the idea that killing a king is acceptable. Not only did he exempt King Agag, he also exempted the prime animal stock. And in verse 11, when Samuel arrived, he was in turmoil. It says Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Why angry? because he'd been the kingmaker, and he was looking a bit stupid if Saul was making major errors. But he saw that the leadership of Israel was now in a worse mess than ever. The king himself was self-seeking. As we'll find in a moment, he built a monument to himself. And Saul was telling lies because he was blaming the sparing of the flocks on his soldiers. Oh, well, they decided to, 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 to spare them after we could use them as offerings to the Lord. So Samuel and Saul meet up. Verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, Oh, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you 
pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord. But, but I did obey the Lord, said Saul. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was de devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord. This took place in Carmel. This is not Mount Carmel, where Elijah had, had his triumphant sacrifice over the priests of Baal in the time of Queen Jezebel. This is a small town in the south of the country. And there he builds a monument to his own honour. Well, you can imagine Samuel's reaction to that, can't you? Back in verse, chapter 11, Saul had given glory to God. He said, no one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has restored Israel. But by now, Saul is building a monument to his own glory. Gilgal is where Saul had been confirmed as king. It was also the place, the very first place where the Israelites settled after crossing the River Jordan. Saul tells a white lie. He said, oh, I have carried out the Lord's instructions, but Samuel's ears tell him differently. He can hear the lowing and the bleating of the animals. And Saul says, oh, well, we kept some of the best living animals so that we could offer them to the Lord. Anyway, it was the soldier's idea and not mine. Notice how he talks about the Lord your God in verse 15. Not the Lord our God or the Lord my God. The Lord your God, Samuel. We've kept it. We've kept these offerings for him. Samuel says in verse 17, once you were small. Do you remember the, the days when you hid among the baggage on the day of your, your coronation? Do you remember how you were chosen from the least important tribe of Benjamin and you, you didn't really want to do the job? Now you're an anointed king. You were given a kingly job to do. One job to do for the Lord and you didn't do it. And he says in verse 20 and 21, I, I, I did do good God's will, well, well, almost, and then blames the soldiers. 
And then Samuel comes out with this powerful prophecy that burnt offerings and sacrifices only please God if they come from an obedient heart. Yahweh did not need sacrifices in the same way that the Baal gods needed sacrifices. The Lord welcomed them because it was the, way, the people's way of expressing their repentance for sin and their offering and worship to God. He didn't need them. And Samuel says these things only please God if they come from an obedient heart. That tells us something about our worship, doesn't it? We'll return to that. He says that rebellion is like devil worship. It's like idolatry, divination. It's like dealing in the occult. It's conjuring evil spirits up. It's dealing like witchcraft. No obedience, no value. We underestimate the value of our obedience to God. In verse 24, Saul confesses, but he puts the blame on others, as he always did, more than once. He's self-justifying. I was afraid of the people and gave in to them. But Saul, even he, is scared of losing Samuel's support. Go with me, don't, don't, don't leave me, he says. Back in chapter 13, Samuel had said to Saul, What have you done? Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, who we know to be David. And now in chapter 15, verse 26, he says, You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king. This is the prophet bringing the king down to size. No other culture in the Middle East in those days had prophets who did that. Middle Eastern prophets sucked up to the kings. They prophesied to the kings what the kings wanted to hear. Not Samuel. He told Saul exactly what he did not want to hear. And as he turned to leave, Saul reached out and grabbed his coat, his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said, today the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you, Saul. It says in verse 30 and 31 that Saul admitted his sin and, and worshipped the Lord, but do you believe that? Can you put in reliance on that? Is this just surface repentance, just remorse? Saul is still more concerned with what the elders think of him than what God thinks of him. So in the closing verses 32 to 35, Samuel did what Saul should have done. Samuel, the prophet, took a sword and put to death King Agag. And then they left. Verse 34, Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. One man goes to Gibeah, the other man goes to Ramah. They're only 10 miles apart geographically, but they're a 1,000 miles apart theologically. Samuel and Saul now have nothing in common in terms of the Lord. Samuel did what Saul and the army should have done. And so they separated and went their separate ways and they never met again. Or did they? We'll see later on in our studies, maybe. Now, Paul tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And certainly this chapter is very strong on rebuking us and correcting us 
and training us in righteousness. Saul erected a monument to himself. And don't we erect our own monuments? In other words, do we not exalt ourselves above and beyond what we should? Do you know, your worst enemy is you. In the, in the Church of England prayer book, it speaks of the world, the flesh and the devil being our enemies. If the devil were to be consigned into the bottomless pit this very day, most of your problems, most of your temptations, most of your sins, most of your weaknesses would continue. Because most of your sinfulness is in you, not in the evil one, it's in you. It's in your pride. Pride is the root of all sins. It's when you think you can put yourself first rather than God first. In verse 15, we are warned not to make pathetic excuses for our sins. Oh, it's the soldiers who decided to keep the best of the animals. Don't blame your sins on others. You are a responsible person, you are a responsible Christian, and you are an answerable Christian. And one day you have to stand before Jesus Christ to answer for what you have done, both good and bad. Read Romans, read Corinthians. Don't blame your sins on others. And then there's that prophetic piece there about the Lord not delighting in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he delights in obedience. Let me read to you from the book of Amos. God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-fading stream. Let me update that. Let me modernise that for, for services today. I hate, I despise your holy communions. Your Sunday services are a stench to me. Even though you bring me money offerings, I will not accept them. You, you, though you bring me missionary collections, I will not accept them. I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your, key, your, of your keyboards. Away, I will not listen to the music of your guitars. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-fading stream. We're wasting our time worshipping Jesus on Sundays if we're not obeying Jesus between Monday and Saturday. Our worship is of no interest to God. He hates it, he despises it, he rejects it. We're just wasting our breath. Worship without obedience has no value. We set limits on our obedience to God, don't we? We treat Jesus more like our servant than our master. We think that we can disregard him on a whim. Our worship without obedience, has no value. In verse 29, Samuel says, the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. It's a lovely title of God, isn't it? The glory of Israel. He doesn't lie or change his mind. God's purpose was to raise up a king who would be a good example, a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus that's at the end of this chain. And God has not changed his mind. God does not change his mind. God has set purposes which whatever man does, God will achieve. In verse 26, 
we see that God sets up leaders and he stands them down. God had stood up Saul, so now he stands him down. Didn't we experience this in the United Kingdom in 2022? On the 6th of September, one Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, handed over to a new one, Liz Truss. On the 8th of September, the head of state, our Queen, died and we had a new king. On the 25th of October, Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister. In 49 days, the United Kingdom had two heads of state and three heads of government. How remarkable. Also, it all took place without any bloodshed. Thank God for that. The Lord sets up leaders and he sets them down. But compare and contrast Saul's kingship with the kingship of Jesus. Both came from humble backgrounds. Saul came from a farming background where donkeys were involved. Jesus, a carpenter, a worker in wood. Both came from despised origins. Saul, from the most small and the most lowly regarded of the tribes, Benjamin, and Jesus from Nazareth, a village which is never even mentioned in the Old Testament. One was in it for himself, Saul. The other was in it for others. He gave himself upon the cross for us all. One tragically failed. The other victoriously succeeded. One erected a monument to himself and to his own glory, but the other left behind a monument to the glory of God, the cross, the empty tomb. What glorifies God, what glorifies Christ more than the cross, the atoning cross, the sin-bearing cross and the empty tomb, the victory over death and hell and the devil? In the cross of Christ I glory, Towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. May God bless you through 1 Samuel chapter 15. Amen. <laughs>